Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. You were going to bring over uh, a pork roast. I was. I, I was. I set out a reminder for myself, and I ended up bringing over the artichoke spinach dip, which, of course, you do not want to try, and no. I've been instructed to leave it here for you. Don't leave it here. I will. It, trust me. It'll, it'll find it'll a way. It'll mold. No. It'll, no. Take All right. it home. Okay. Well, what were you going I was going to wait to get to this, right. but did you enjoy the chips and salsa that Mom picked up? You guys had your huge Super Bowl party. Didn't invite us. <laughs> yes. The no, we didn't invite anybody. chips and salsa. This is General George Washington, and you're listening to the Tony Kornheiser Show. Just as a small update on that, from Kenny Ray in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, who has listened and emailed for years. Oh, yes. Long time. Chips and salsa? That was the extent of your Super Bowl menu? (laughs) Chips and salsa? What? Did you have Spurrier come over to the house? Because that's a 5-11 Super Bowl spread. Not very good. Come on, man. What are we even doing out here, man? So, yeah. I mean, it was not much. I have to say, it was not much. And it was... And then and then from shared, expired, unopened, you'll get sick and die or not, it's 50-50. <laughs> yeah, so I have one other thing I wanted to read, because I know that a lot of people out there are wondering, how's DG doing? Is he all right? <laughs> Is he down, you know, at the PGA? Is he okay in Florida, South Florida? Is he okay, West Palm Beach? From DG. There used to be a place called Kitty City in Little Neck on Northern Boulevard that had rides and an arcade. I used to ride my bike from Clearview with my friends in the late 50s. Have you ever been there? Regards, DG. <laughs> these, are e- these emails that we get from him are fascinating in their way because they presume not just a friendship, but a closeness over 50 or 60 years. Yes. I think I met him once, but I love, <clears throat> I do, I love the email. A couple of things to get to before we do the show. We're going to bring in Barry Verluga all the way from China on this show today. But a couple of things that I thought were important. First of all, Djokovic. Novak Djokovic did something yesterday that I actually admire. It's the first time I'm using the word admire in context of this guy in a very, very long time. Djokovic said, I'm not getting this shot. If it costs me majors, I'll live with it. I'm not getting the shot. It's as simple as that. Now, the French Open is next up in late May. Uh, I keep reading that France is going to lift all restrictions, so Djokovic is going to be able to play. Wimbledon never had any particular restrictions. The U.S. Open will follow New York City restrictions, which right now would not permit him to play right. without a shot. But if you're going to say, look, I don't want to take this shot. I've thought about it. I don't care. If it costs me everything, I'll live with it. I admire that. That is a stand on principle. And by the way, he's not Kyrie Irving. He's not letting down his teammates. He's an individual athlete. If golfer, tennis player, whatever, you're an individual athlete. You can do what you want. Now. I'll go back to what happened in Australia when I believe he deliberately lied on his application. When he said, oh, these were innocent mistakes, I don't believe that for a second. I believe he deliberately lied to try to laugh at the Australians and play in the Australian Open. And he got burned. Put his hand a little too close to the torch. And he got burned. And they deported him (laughs) like a common criminal. They deported him. And that was the right thing for Australia to do. And this now is the right thing for Djokovic to do. That's my small comment on that. Um, so I went to the doctor yesterday. This is going to be geography. I went to the doctor yesterday. And the doctor, my great dermatologist, Bud Giblin, has an office on Shady Grove Road. For those of you who are familiar with Shady Grove Road in Gaithersburg, which is like a little bit of a drive. Two miles north of Shady Grove Road, and there are cows. It's like really out there. It's like where Gary lives. Yes, yeah, that's right. There direction. are cows where Gary lives. So 270, which is the main artery coming south and north <clears throat> to get to from my house, to get to Shady Grove Road. On the southbound side, which I saw going north to get to the doctor's office, there was a significant accident, and there was a backup of miles. So I asked, I said, I I can't go home on 270. I'm not going to be here long enough for them to clean this up. So could you tell me how to get home? And Bud said to me, just just go on Shady Grove Road and make a right on Wisconsin Avenue, the extension of Wisconsin Avenue. Oh, sure. Which is actually by the numbers 355. 355, yeah. Rockville Pike, Wisconsin Avenue. So I made a right, and I've lived here over 40 years. I had had no idea. I, I I turned right to go south. And I felt if I continued going south, at some point, I would either hit D.C. or Florida. I'd be okay. <laughs> just I just keep going south. <laughs> so I had a sense that I was doing the right thing, but I'd never been on any of these roads. 
So I called Michael, who's not here this morning. I called Michael, and I left the following voice message. Boy, I've lived here a long time. I've never been on these roads. I don't know where I am. I think, I think I'm lost. I was going to call Gary, but I didn't want to wake him up because it was pretty early in the morning. A doctor's appointment was at 7. So I didn't want to wake Gary up. So I'm just calling you to say, if I don't find a landmark soon, I don't know what's going to go on. Anyway, I got to where I went to the Rockville Town Center. I'd never oh, been sure. there. Yeah. I did see a BMW of Rockville, which made me happy because I could get my car fixed there if I needed it. Yeah, Although I want Mike Walker, of course, to pick my car up from BMW of Fairfax because <laughs> I trust Mike Walker. I don't know yeah. if I trust the people in Rockville. Yeah. You have an expression on your face that indicates I should not. I've had some dealings with them. It hasn't that, been great. It nah, hasn't been real great. Go no. to Fairfax because Mike Walker I is should. really good. Yes. Anyway, I saw that, and I said I'd never seen that before. I saw some things I'd never seen before, but finally, after about 20 minutes, I saw on my right the entrance to Woodmont. And I was good. Oh, there you, there and then I saw, you know, Matchbox, and then I saw the radio station, and I saw, you know, I was good at that point. But I, I realized I live a very insular life. <laughs> if I've been here that long, and I've never been to Rockville Town Center, <laughs> which I think is a pretty big deal in Rockville. Well, as we've discussed in the past, your grid is, is small. fairly small. And with COVID... It, yeah, even intensely small. small. <laughs> intensely small. Intensely small. Yes. But right. just, uh, you know, I've only been up that way once. I think I've only been through the Rockville Town Center once, and I think I was lost. And I was like, where Did you am need I? a shot <laughs> to get in and out? Did you need to be quarantined no, to go to Rockville? No, this is pre-COVID, so this is way Daniel Light, who does such a good job on PTI, lives in Rockville, and I always make fun of Rockville, <laughs> and he always says, stop. It's really good. All right. I got this letter yesterday on the – it's just a letter to my home. And it says, the stamp on it is Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania. And I looked at the return address and it was Mr. Stu Speicher, S-P-E-I-C-H-E-R, Spiker, Speicher, Speicher, at something called McCungie, Pennsylvania, M-A-C-U-N-G-I-E. I've never heard of McCungie, Pennsylvania. Not familiar. I assume it's a pretty small town. But the fact that it's in the Lehigh Valley indicates to me that this is on the eastern side of Pennsylvania and maybe pretty near, maybe pretty near 81, um, which is the road to Binghamton. And I bring up Binghamton because of what I'm going to do right now, which is read this letter that I got and show Nigel what I got. What is this? What am I holding my hand? A $5 bill. I'm going to read the letter right now. Dr. Kornheiser, here's your five bucks. My kid's GPA isn't the best, and let's not mention his SAT scores, but a deal's a deal, old sport. Can you provide me information about freshman orientation, meal plans, and places to stay <laughs> during BU Parents Weekend? I'll hang up and listen. <laughs> Stu Speicher, father of Jared Speicher, Emos, E-M-M-A-U-S, and Moss, high school class of 22. <laughs> he sends me a picture of his kid decked out in the robe. Yeah. This is what I said, as people know, when that whole thing broke with USC and actresses were paying $150,000 to $300,000 to get their kids into USC. I sat on these microphones and I said, hey, you want a deal at a good school? Send me five bucks. I'll get your kid into Binghamton. Well, nobody ever did it. Until now. So I wasn't faced with this particular crisis that I'm faced with now because of Mr. Speicher, who, by the way, I admire enormously for doing this. It's just a $5 bill. He's out five. So I wrote a letter last night to John. John works at Binghamton and is my contact. And John is a guy who, who works in development and strategic planning for Binghamton and is good friends with Harvey Stenger. And John, every once in a while, writes me a note and he says, so-and-so um, made a great gift to the school. Maybe you'd call and say thanks on behalf of the school. I go, sure. I've done it twice already. I've done it with my old friend Larry Gaynan, who I went to school with, and I've done it with a guy named Charlie Weissman, who endowed a beautiful scholarship. This is such a good story. Uh, they asked me to call Charlie. I call him. I don't know him. I get his wife. He's, he's on a business trip to Florida. Mm -hmm. I get his wife on the phone. She's very amiable. We begin to chat. We talk about Long Island because she's very proud of Charlie and Charlie's mom, for whom the scholarship is named and stuff like that. And at some point, you know, we're chatting, and she says, uh, well, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, you know, I was a newspaper sports writer 
And that's all I ever wanted to be was a newspaper sports writer. And going to Harper College and Binghamton University helped me a lot. I said, you know, Charlie's from Herrick's on Long Island. Probably when he was in high school, it's possible I was working in Newsday. He might have read one or two of my stories. That's all I say about myself. And I just say, just tell him when he calls you. Just tell him I call. And she goes, let me get, get your name again. How's that pronounced? And I do all this. And I write John. And I say, man, Charlie's wife didn't know me from Adam, had no idea who I was. I hope this works out. And he says, oh, Charlie will call. <laughs> oh, Charlie called. <laughs> and we talked about this whole thing, and we talked about it at great length. Anyway, so I said to John, I had a lovely conversation. And then yesterday, last night, and I haven't had any response from John yet, I said, I want you to understand what just happened. I went on the air for a while, and I said, give me five bucks, I get your kid into great school. <laughs> Because I know that we have the room for students. Sure. And I know that anybody who wants to go to Binghamton, we're going to look kindly at someone who wants to go to Binghamton. I said, his dad says he's not the greatest student in the world, but it seems to me we can make it happen, right? <laughs> and I emphasized, I said, and I want to say we again, <laughs> because I don't want to be in this alone. So this is, this is one of the greatest letters I've ever gotten. I don't know if young Jared wants to go to Binghamton. I get the sense that this town, did you see where the town is? Yeah, is it's it a suburb, suburb of Allentown. Well, that's not far from Binghamton. That's less than two hours from Binghamton. Yeah, part of the Lehigh Valley Lehigh region Valley. of the state. So, yeah. 3,074 as of 2010. Small sure town. Yeah, yeah. So E-M-M-A-U-S, that high school is probably a central high school. It's probably not just their high school. Right. You know, the kid could drive up there in an hour and a half to two hours to Binghamton. He's used to the weather. Yes. It's a little bit further north than him, but he knows what he's getting into. Probably be a great student. So that's what I got. I wanted to read some other things, taking, talking about small towns. Les Kernan in Macedon, New York, near Rochester. Listening to the show and hearing both Michael recitation uh, of Mickey Mouse and the emails about hometown celebrities, I wanted to weigh in. I believe that my hometown of Utica, New York, I've been to Utica a million yes. times. I believe my hometown of Utica, New York, was also the hometown of that wonderful mouseketeer, Annette Funicello. I had no idea about that. An additional fun fact, when Dick Clark, yes, that Dick Clark, was employed by Utica's local television station, he dated my mother, perhaps obviously, perhaps obviously before she became my mother. Thanks for all of your wonderful shows. From Brandon Costello, singer-songwriter in Lexington. Want to know who's from Lexington? Joe B. Hall, Steve Zahn, George Clooney, Mary Todd Lincoln, and me. <laughs> and you. Solid list. From Joe Pearson in Indianapolis. Hey, can I play two? Indianapolis isn't exactly a small town, so it's probably not a surprise that there were at least a few famous people born here, like Kurt Vonnegut, Steve McQueen, Jane Pauley, Wes Montgomery, David Letterman, even John Dillinger. But my favorite is Marjorie Maine. Yes, folks, the one and only Ma Kettle. Okay, so she played a lot of other roles, too, even Humphrey Bogart's mother in Dead End. But she is certainly best known as the hardworking country matriarch she played in the 10 Ma and Pa Kettle movies. Technically, when Maine was born in 1890, her birthplace of Acton was a small town just outside Indianapolis. But in the intervening century and change, it has long since been absorbed into Indianapolis proper. So that's my choice. By the way, how come you haven't mentioned, or maybe you did and I missed it, that Captain Kangaroo was born in your very own hometown? Well, I don't know this. Captain Kangaroo is Bob Keeshan, K-E-E-S-H-A-N. My hometown is Lindbrook, New York. I did not know that Bob Keeshan was born in Lindbrook, New York. I mean, I was born in New York City, but my parents got a house. I was less than a month old when we moved to Lindbrook. Is Bob Keeshan from Lindbrook? Are you looking this up? Uh, yes, I'm looking that up right now. From Chad Supp in Urbana, Illinois. Yes, that Chad Supp. Pause for obligatory. What's up? While we're still on the topic of famous people from hometowns, here's a short list of some guys you may have heard from where I grew up in Danville, Illinois. Is Donald O'Connor someone I could interest you in? No. How about both Van Dyke brothers, Jerry and Dick? So your preferences lean towards musicians? Okay, try Bobby Short on for size. What about a freaking astronaut? Because we have Joe Tanner. In fact, his dad, a doctor, delivered me into this world. And last but certainly not least, what say you to two-time Oscar winner Gene Hackman? Now, you may ask, really, Gene Hackman is from a backwoods jerkwater town like Danville, <laughs> Illinois? And my response would be yes. In fact, he was a childhood pal of my grandpa, Fred. And I have photos of Hackman as an usher at my grandparents' wedding. Bob Keeshan? Born Lindbrook. I never knew that. Yeah, I guess. Went I never to, knew that. Went to high school in Queens, Forest Hills High School in well, Queens. He must have moved away from Lindbrook. Unless yeah. He, yeah, but born in Although Lindbrook. Although Forest Hills is 35, 40 minutes away. But if... 
you know, it's hard to get to. Wow. I Did, didn't uh, yeah, I had no idea. Matt Weissman, Berkeley Heights, New Jersey. I have this friend from my hometown of Marlboro, New Jersey. Maybe you've heard of him. Mr. Anthony Joseph Reale. My friend may have been born on the rock, but we'll claim him as our own. Staten Island. I always thought he was Staten Island. Uh, Tony Locansoli. Greetings, fellow Tony. I grew up in the Chicago suburb of Oak Park, which has more famous people than any of your previous emailers. Let's start with Dan Castellaneta, the voice of Homer oh, Simpson. That's right. Whom my father graduated high school with. When asked to describe him, my dad said he was weird. I often remind him of how much money Dan makes per episode and tell my father you could have voiced Barney. Even more notable Oak Park natives. Ernest Hemingway. Needs no explanation. Pretty good one there. Cecily Strong, currently Saturday Night Live cast member oh, yeah, and my classmate. Great. Jeff Morrow, Food Network celebrity chef. Mason Gamble, actor who Michael would know as Dennis from the 90s Dennis the Menace film. Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect. <laughs> he was all right. Betty White. Yes, that Betty White was born in Oak Park. And last but not least is the great Bob Newhart. Oof. I've attached a photo from when I got to meet Bob in 2013 after a show. I told him, hey, Bob, I'm also from Oak Park. Without skipping a beat, he looked up and said, what would I know you from? I paused and replied, well, I spent 11 years in morning radio here in Iowa. No autographs, please. He laughed and said, I don't think your head can get any bigger. Bob Newhart said I have a big head. I win. With cheesery from Muscatine, Iowa. And a picture. Picture of him with, with, with the legendary Bob Newhart. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Tony Locansoli is a big boy. Yes. I'll do just one more. Um, dear Dr. Hoffwell, so the new game, we have time for one more, don't we? Oh, yes, absolutely. So the new game is famous people from hometowns. Okay. But just to get caught up on other games, left, right, slide, right, hard, left. <laughs> No dogs, but we have African tree frogs with a combined weight of two ounces. 24 outlets in the kitchen. I can't name all of the rascals, but I can tell you the starting lineup for the 1979 Pittsburgh Pirates. And from Winbier, Pennsylvania, we have college football Hall of Fame coach Frank Cush, famous for punching a guy in the head. Yeah. Olympic gold medal swimmer and the original Tarzan. Oh, Johnny, Johnny Weissmuller, yeah. and Alan Freed, the man who became a radio DJ in Cleveland and coined the term rock and roll and organized the first rock concert ever. And that's why the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Cleveland, because of Alan Freed. Oh, and Rob Lowe. Not that Rob Lowe. This Rob Lowe. <laughs> Rob Lowe, North Royalton, Ohio. We'll take a break. Barry Sverluga will join us all the way from China when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. This is the X-Chair read. From the moment you sit in an X-Chair, your body will immediately say, ah, this is what a real office chair is supposed to feel like. Can your office chair that you have now give you a massage while you work? Of course not. X-Chair can. Can the office chair you have now heat up or cool down? No, of course not. X-Chair can. It's all in the LMAX massage and temperature regulation, exclusively designed and made for X-Chair. And once you feel the customized support of X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar, or those in the no call at the old DVL, your back will never be happy in any other chair again. High performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort, those are all reasons to love the X-Chair. Try X-Chair for yourself risk-free for 30 days, and once you realize how much better your chair should be, you will never go back. Go to xchairtony.com now. That's the letter X, chair, T-O-N-Y, dot com. Or call 1-844-4-X-Chair for $100 off your order. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. You can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. XChairTony.com. Don't be a dope. Use the code. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show. This is sent to us by Bill Isaacson, who writes, This is to introduce you to the music of my friend Brett Hughes of Burlington, Vermont. These are two of his songs, Sweet Little Bird and Mine, Yours, Two Lawyers and a Judge. <laughs> the second song features one of my favorite lyrics. A man without a future needs a woman with a past. Once Brett wrote that line, I hope he tossed the pen over his shoulder and took the rest of the month off. <laughs> Brett is backed up on both songs by name. You will remember the great Shannon McNally. We'll get into this later. This is Sweet Little Bird, and it plays in Barry's Verluga. And this is tenuous for us because he's on a phone line. We don't know how long it's going to last from China. We have no idea. So I'll just start this. It, it's so odd. One of the questions I had written down was did you watch the super bowl and if you did were you tempted to write about it and i was going to get into the fact barry that when you're at the olympics every once in a while you know you want something familiar and then here you are today writing about ryan zimmerman 
which I believe is the absolute right column to write, as Ryan Zimmerman, Mr. Nat, has retired. So I'll ask the first question. Did you watch the Super Bowl and were you tempted? And how did you come to write about Zimmerman? Uh, so I definitely watched the Super Bowl. And our IT wizard over here, Barry Doyle, um, hooked us up with the NBC coverage, which was great. So we, we were uh, – Dave Shannon and Adam Kilgore and I took an early bus into the press center. And it's possible that he one of us – popped a beer at seven in the morning and um, <laughs> Shannon had a potluck uh, list on the wall the night before who was going to bring what. Um, I signed up for Turkey Chili. I had no idea I could not bring Turkey Chili. Um, but yeah, we, so we watched the Super Bowl and we did watch it in the office and it was on at seven 30 kickoff was at seven 30 in the morning on Monday morning. And um, we drank it in very much like you would a typical American Super Bowl. I was not tempted to write about it because um, we had Candace Buckner as a columnist in Los Angeles. That was her job. I'm not going to step on those toes. And Sally was writing about it overnight. And we had plenty of people there, and my job was here. So I was happy to take it in as a consumer um, and really thrilled that we got to watch it in real time and do the halftime show and and kind of have an American experience. Um, the Zimmerman thing was different. Um, that's a, a, you know, a story and a character that I feel some ownership with um, or over. I was the beat writer when he came up in, in 05, and I was around for his entire career, and, and he was gracious enough to you know, tip his hand to me prior to that happening. So we, we talked actually last week, um, and I knew his, uh, that you know, they were going to, um, break the story on Tuesday afternoon, D.C. time. Um, so I had my column pre-written, and we had arranged for a, a new story to be written. And I literally set an alarm for, you know, 3.55 in the morning so I could tweet out my, my column here. Um, and it was great because he was introspective and expansive in, in a way that he probably wouldn't have been in the midst of his career, but on the tail end, you have a different perspective. So um, I know your listeners are not all D.C.-based, but that's a very particular Washington, D.C. sports character who means a lot to that town. Um, and I was happy to be able to, to tell that story from here. He walks away with talent. He had a good year last year as a part-time player. I thought he should have played more. He walks away with more home runs and RBI and games played and hits than anybody who ever wore the Washington Nationals uniform. I think he's got the third most famous home run of all time. And that wasn't that in his first game. Didn't he have a walk-off in his first, the first game ever at Nats Park? Did he not walk that off? He walked off the first game at Nats Park. And and remember, Tony, by that point, you know, he was essentially the figure who was trusted to prop up the entire organization. I mean, they were carrying – you know, what we're about to be a hundred lost teams into that new ballpark. And if you go down there now, that is a thriving neighborhood, even during the pandemic of, of with restaurants and bars and a scene and, and, you know, 20 and 30 something living in high rises and a huge population base because of the department of transportation and the Naval yard and all that stuff down there in, in 2008, at the beginning of 2008, that was just a bunch of cranes and a bunch of hope. And, and I'm not attaching Ryan Zimmerman to the revitalization of an entire section of Washington, D.C., but he's the only one who was along for the entire ride, who really understood um, as the first draft pick of this franchise what it was like before it got good, and then what it was like over a decade of winning but coming close, and then, you know, not lost on anybody should be the fact that, you know, they were trailing in game one against the Astros, and he hit the home run against Garrett Cole that kind of got them going. So just an enormous figure in the sports history of the town. And, and um, yeah, I, I don't – I mean, I'm predisposed to overstating it. I don't think it should be overstated. Um, the the most famous home run for people following the Nats is Howie Kendrick's home run. Second is Jason Wirth's, and third is Ryan Zimmerman's. And Ryan Zimmerman is Mr. Nat. And I'll get off that now uh, to, to ask you all the right questions about being in China, since we haven't even mentioned that. 
It is uh, about 10 after 8 here in the morning, which makes it about 10 after 9 where you are at night in China. What is your day like? When we first talked before, before you went over there, you were sort of discouraged about what the experience would be like and how narrow it would be. And, you, you know, I wonder, did your worst fears come true or is it better than you thought? I mean, I think my worst fears were amplified, unfortunately. Oh, um, oh no. We, the, to- the Tokyo Olympics were a pandemic Olympics. But if you remember, in August of last year, that was pre-Delta and pre-Omicron. And we were all vaccinated, and we thought we were on the tail end of that stuff. And again, I feel like we, we feel like we're on the tail end of it now, and I hope to be coming back to the States and, and having things be more normal. But um, China was not going to allow it be to be more normal. Um, and so these games have been not at all a cultural exchange and, and the kind of experience in another country that you would hope. You would hope to come back with stories for your family, but also stories for your publication of this is what the people are like there, and these are their customs and traditions. And the reality in these pandemic Olympics and these bubble Olympics is you have hotel, bus, office, venue, bus, hotel, and there's no getting outside and there's no walking across the street to a convenience store. And there's certainly not going outside the bubble to a restaurant or a bar or a neighborhood that you hadn't experienced. So the entire thing, unfortunately, is a, a giant soundstage. It happens to be in Beijing, China. It could be in Burbank, California, or, you know, wherever on the face of the yeah. planet. Um, it's it's just not an Olympics in the way an Olympics should be. It's a television program, um, even more than Tokyo ever won. Uh, interestingly enough, the ratings are terrible. They're off 50%. Um, now, I don't want people to think that means nobody's watching because the ratings are much higher than anything else other than the Super Bowl but they're way down from what they used to be, recently even. Do you have any particular theories about that? So I do, Tony, and I think, and I may write about this as we get to the end of this, um, and this is nothing against Asia, but this is the third straight Asian Games. If you go to Pyeongchang in Seoul, in South Korea in 2018, and then Tokyo that was bumped from 2020 to 2021, and, and now Beijing, um, that's not a cultural criticism. It's a. It's actually a time clock criticism. And yes, I think yes. there's a wear and tear on the American public uh, of not being able to see enough stuff in real time. NBC can only package so much um, in that prime time slot between 8 p.m. and 11 p.m. where, you know, the non-sports fan would come to it and say, oh, I'm really intrigued by... X, Y, and Z. Um, and I, just, I think that in a world where um, not only have people become more accustomed to having the video and the broadcast right then at their fingertips um, and not wanting to wait for things to be prepackaged, but if you, if you think of uh, an eight-year-old person in 2018 who might be predisposed to falling in love with the Olympics over the course of a span of the winter in 18 and the summer in 2020 or 21, and then the winter again in 2022, and they can't see that stuff simply because of the time clock, I think there was a, a maybe unforeseen fallout of having all these games in Asia where, where everything is literally like flipped over. I think you get to Paris in 2024 in Milan Cortina in Italy in 2026, where you have a more normal time switch, you might be able to get some viewers back because when you're done with your work day, you have a chance to consume them in real time. And that's really what I think people want. They want the drama in real time. I think there's a wear and tear over the last three that has eroded the American interest in, in the Olympics as a whole. I agree with all of that. Um, I do. I don't want to, I don't, know how long this telephone connection is going to work. So I'm sort of down to two things I want to talk about. You've written about Michaela Schifrin longer and better than everybody. And we all have great empathy for her circumstance. And I would talk about that, except it's 
to me, it's more interesting. The the 15-year-old Russian girl, Valieva, um, Barry, I, I, I find myself at odds with Sally on this. The Russians cheat all the time. I don't believe that this young girl willfully and knowingly took something that was going to get her popped. But if you have rules and the rules are broken and there's no punishment, none, what is the point of having rules? You're not wrong. And, and I mean, I think both of us have enormous respect for Sally's ability and her intellect. And, and I mean, it's great. it would be great to sit down and talk to her about it. Um, but I, I don't agree with her on, on this one. And But I do think that, that the fault is not at the feet of a 15-year-old girl. Right. It's at the feet. Right. Of, of the International Olympic Committee, who um, was aware after the 2014 Olympics in Sochi, and honestly, after the 2012 Olympics in, in London, where... They cheat um, all the time! Dozen, and it's proven, Tony. It's, it's proven not only that they cheat, but that um, at least at some point in time, it was a state-sponsored <laughs> um, <laughs> cheating system. And, and if you talk to people who are athlete advocates because these poor Olympic athletes do not have enough of them. They don't have a union like major league baseball or the NFL has. They're disparate and they're, they're looking for their one chance in every four years to have some sort of commercial value. Um, If you listen to those people, uh, their understanding is that if you're a Russian athlete, you, it's decided that you're either in or you're out. You're going to go along with this doping program or you're not, and there are going to be ramifications if you don't. You're not going to have the opportunities if you don't. And so the International Olympic Committee in 2016 had the opportunity to ban Russia, and not ban Russia, which they would claim they did, but ban, ban all Russian athletes from these competitions. And they did not. And it doesn't matter that the, that Russian athletes are here competing not for Russia, but for the Russian Olympic Committee? No, it does not. Like that, 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 is, that is semantics. It's athletic semantics. And it has cast a pall over these games unnecessarily because I would argue that the IOC and the Court for Arbitration for Sport and WADA itself should have had a stronger fist six years ago because that would have squashed the idea that some 15-year-old girl from Russia is messing with the system. Um, she's a pawn in all yes. of this, and it's, it's yes. overshadowed the games. I agree with that. All right, I'll get you out of here on this, and I'll go back to Michaela Schifrin, who's not going to win any medals, and, and that's fine. She's won gold medals before. She's maybe the greatest skier of all time, actually, greatest American skier, anyway, of all time. Do you think she'll ever ski in the Olympics again? And even more narrowly, do you think she'll ever ski again competitively? So it's a great question. And I I would say, even though this sounds really naive, I mean, if you told me three weeks ago, what was she supposed to meddle in more than anything? I would say the Alpine combined, which is in my world tomorrow. um, Still out there. I'm I'm headed up to sea. So, I mean, that's the one where, She's very versatile, and and she should be able to, in theory, she should be able to meddle in her sleep. The problem is she can't even sleep in her sleep right now. Um, And so it's a question about what is is her mental state. Um, She is, without question, uh, an extraordinary athlete, a a gold medal winner twice over, um, and anybody, any American alpine skier would sign up for two gold medals and, and three Olympic medals overall at the beginning of their career. Um, she would stand here right now and tell you she did not meet her own expectations uh, at these Olympics. And so I think she's both a fascinating character tomorrow in the Alpine combined and a fascinating character going forward because she's 26. She absolutely could ski through 30 to Milan Cortina in a, at a venue where she, unlike her Olympics to this point, which have been Sochi and Pyeongchang and Beijing, she would be tackling a situation that she's wholly familiar with because these, these skiers 
They know Europe. They ski there all the time. They're familiar with the customs. All the routines would be the same. Nothing would be different. Um, I have been on the Schifrin beat since before 2014. I try to be clear-headed about it, um, and I know that skiing out in the slalom and the giant slalom before the sixth turn is just completely shocking. I'm fascinated to see what happens tomorrow. And then, as you pointed out, I'm, I'm fascinated to see what happens the next year and, and four years from now because I think everything's on the table. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on. You're doing a great job there. I, I feel terrible that you can't eat the food and see the places and travel without restrictions because, as you say, it just becomes a television show on a soundstage. It's, that's too bad. But thanks. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Barry. Thanks, Tony. And I just, I mean, I don't want to overstate it. It's a, it's a privilege and an honor to be here for the post. So I, I, I but I just want to convey to the listeners that it's, it's not what it seems to be sometimes. So I yeah. appreciate it. Barry's Verluga, boys and girls, we will take a break. Jeff Passan will catch us up on whether or not there's going to be baseball. <laughs> when we return, I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. This is a new ad. This is for trade. I believe that's the name, trade. I'm going to read this cold, you know, so you understand what it is, and then I'm going to tell you about the letter I got. 90% of coffee from the grocery store is actually stale. You heard that right. The coffee you know and think you love needs an upgrade. Instead of rebuying the same old, same old, let Trade Coffee, T-R-A-D-E, Trade Coffee send you something freshly roasted that you're literally guaranteed to love. Trade sells the freshest roasted and ethically sourced beans from America's best independent roasters. They ship free to you as often as you'd like, whole or ground. Whether you're a coffee nerd or just want a better daily cup, Trade's real coffee experts taste test over 400 roasts and use technology to match you to your ideal coffee based on your preferences and brewing method. Take the coffee quiz to get started. Trade Coffee guarantees you'll love your first bag or they'll replace it for free. Trade's been featured in the New York Times, Wired, GQ, and has delivered over 5 million bags of coffee. Their subscription is no hassle. You can skip shipments, change your frequency, or cancel at any time. I'm going to go to the end of this and then go back in. For our listeners to this high-quality program, right now Trade Coffee is offering a total of $20 off your first three bags when you go to drinktrade.com slash Tony. To get started, you take the quiz the coffee There's a quiz. quiz. You're not. You're not just getting this. You got to take the quiz. If you fail the quiz, I don't know. Take the quiz at drinktrade.com/tony and start your journey to your perfect cup. That's drinktrade. D R I N K. Drinktrade. T R A D E. dot com slash tony for twenty dollars off your first three days. Okay, that's that's the copy. But I got to tell you that I got a note. I got a note from the. How is this pronounced? Message. Maché. Maché. Yes. It says, I'm Maché, the director of coffee at Trade. I heard our quiz matched you with Orin's French Roast Swiss Water Decaf. How about that? <laughs> Which phenomenal. is a pretty cool coffee. It's not easy to get real dark roast flavor in a decaf without burning it to hell. And they do a great job with this one. We've also sent you a French press, which is a wildly easy way to make tasty coffee. If this eventually sends you down a rabbit hole of grinding your own beans, <laughs> using scales, and other coffee nerd things, I'll happily send you all those stats. I think Reali was a solid five years ahead of me at Fordham, but that still might count for something, right? It's as easy as throwing in 10 scoops of ground coffee, filling it up with hot water, stirring and waiting four minutes before pressing. So it's a French press. Now, I guess that means you have to physically press it. Yes. Sean, do you know anything about French press? I do, yes. You, you just, have to physically yeah, you tell just the people push it down. me, it's, it's not that hard, right? Not at so all. I, I'm excited about this. I'm excited about actually using it. Now, my problem, this is my problem. I drink one cup of coffee a day. That's really all I drink. But this is going to make me 10 cups of coffee. Maybe I could start selling it to the kids in the neighborhood. <laughs> I, mean, I, don't, I don't really know what to do. But I'm excited. Like, Michael always does this. He, Michael reviews all the potential ads. Yes. Michael said, this is a good one. Let's do this one. Trade. Trade coffee. But, uh, you know, it's asking me to do stuff I don't understand. <laughs> I'm really good at getting coffee when I say, hey, how about a cup of coffee? And I say that to a waiter or a waitress. <laughs> You know, or somebody at a diner. Right. One cup a day. Decaf. Yeah. Such a loser. <laughs> You're listening 
to the Tony Kornheiser Show. Once again, Brett Hughes of Burlington, Vermont, and Bill Isaacson writes, Brett is well-known in Burlington, where he hosted Honky Tonk Tuesdays for over a decade. He's played with bands with more names than he can count, from Chrome Cowboys to the Whiskey Liquors to the Whateverly Brothers. <laughs> One Vermont publication has said of Brett, he's been a mainstay in the music community for so long that all of his introductions say the man needs no introduction. You can follow him on Instagram at, at @brettrockinhughes. Um, finally, in important local music news, Brett, along with Shannon McNally, the great Shannon McNally, will be appearing together at the Pearl Street Warehouse in D.C. on Saturday, March 12th. Littles should go. Absolutely. Should go. This is called Mine, Yours, Two Lawyers, and a Judge. And it plays in <laughs> Jeff Passan. And I've got a million small questions, things like, Who's running the players? Do you expect 162? When do you expect it to start? Is spring training, you know, really that important? But but you got to start with the overall large question, which is very simply, Jeff, where are we? Where are we with baseball? No, we're good. And yeah. it's getting to the point, Tony, where when baseball fans are frustrated and concerned about the season beginning on time, uh, both of those are very warranted right now. And the, the frustration can go in many places. I, I think it's uh, one of the more interesting parts of this labor negotiation to me is looking at the way that the public and fans are taking sides on this. Historically, in sports labor disputes, it has been, and you can look back at polling uh, in baseball from the 94 strike, almost two to one on the owner's side, saying that the owners are less in the wrong here. Um, the way I sense it now, and I know social media can uh, twist your opinion a little bit, mm -hmm. and you have echo chambers, but I, I think this plays itself out publicly uh, outside of social media, too. It's almost flipped. I mean, the, the players have, I would venture to say, almost two to one greater support than the owners at this point for all those who actually still care enough about baseball to really give a damn about this whole thing. What is, what is the player's main objection or what is the player's main goal here? What is the thing that they're not going to give in on? Oh boy, I, I, you know, I look at this like it's a math problem, and at the end of the day, what the players are looking for is not so much a single thing like we've had single issue strikes in the past. You know, in '81, mm -hmm. it was about uh, compensatory picks for free agency. This is more nebulous. This is more about fairness, but. But more than fairness, I think it's about guarantees. And, and what I mean by that is you look at a couple of data points. Number one, salaries over the last four years, um, and, and I know, you know COVID hit and that sort of changed the calculus on things a little bit, but salaries the last four years, player salaries, uh, have gone down. Which really? Is a very, oh, yeah. I mean, players, uh, you know, it's been sort of almost flattish to, to down, but nevertheless, revenues grow, salaries don't. And, and that indicates something to players, which is that their share of this pie has gone down. And unlike the NFL, the NBA, and the NHL, they're not guaranteed a particular share of the pie because they don't have a salary capped system. And uh, essentially once you start splitting revenues, the, that's the framework for a cap and baseball players. Yes. And they don't want that. That's yeah, right. They, they don't I want mean, that, that right. the, you want to talk about a single issue. That's what 1994 was about. So um, it, it's more, I think about the guarantee of what they can get because if you look at it, I'm going to take a single issue, for example, service time manipulation. I think any reasonable human being can look at what happened with Chris Bryant. You need 172 days on the big league roster, Tony, to 
get a full year of service. And of course, after six full years of service, you reach free agency. Uh, Chris Bryant got called up so that at the end of his first year, he had 171 days of service, which means that the Chicago Cubs had him under control for six full years. In addition to that, you know, yeah, like 15 16ths of a year that they got from him or, or 171 out of 172 it, you know it turns out um the players want a situation like that where you have a high achieving guy who doesn't have a full year of service to be able to earn service time to round up to give him that one year in his first year. The league wants to incentivize teams not to manipulate service through draft picks. And so on one side, you've got the league that's saying, we're not going to guarantee these players anything. We're just going to try and put rules in place so that teams uh, think that it's the right thing to do and thus go out and do that. And the players are saying, no, 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 no. We don't trust you guys worth a damn right. because right. we're in a sport that's making more money, and somehow we, the product, are making less. And, and so why should we trust you to follow through with these so-called incentives when all you could do is say, hey, the rules of Major League Baseball say that after six full years of service in the Major Leagues, we become free agents. And yet, in practice, it is seven years ostensibly. And this has been going on, Tony, again and again and again for years now. I mean, you know, service time manipulation is nothing new. So I, I think what this is, it, it's the manifestation of years of built up mistrust. And at the heart of that, from the player side, is Rob Manfred. Let, let me, yeah, and he's the leader of the, of the baseball establishment, and they don't even want to sit down with him. And then the people on the other side don't want to sit down and think that Scott Boris has anything to do with it. What you're saying about manipulation is, is time manipulation is solvable, actually, with what the NBA did with Larry Bird rights, because your team can offer you something greater than anybody else can offer you at some point. And, and, if you go to the players, Jeff, and you say the following sentence, understand you don't want a salary cap, but the three leagues around you with salary caps, the players' percentage of the revenue has gone up. Would you mm -hmm. reconsider on a salary cap, right? I mean, isn't that a reasonable question? So there, there are a couple of things here to address. I, I think number one is the idea that a salary cap solves, Tony, all labor issues is just like – not realistic. I mean, since okay. baseball's last work stoppage, the NBA, NFL, and NHL, in some cases, have had multiple work stoppages. So it's not some kind of a panacea. Um, okay. And and Bruce Meyer, who is the negotiator for the player side and was hired after uh, kind of a disaster of a basic agreement back in 2016 for the players, uh, is on the record and vociferously against this. And uh, listen, th there's nothing that the MLBPA, understandably and rightly, leans on more than its history. And, uh, it, you know, the, the PA looks back at 1994, which for fans, I think, uh, it was a very dark season as instead a seminal moment of unity and, and something, uh, despite the consequences of it, uh, something of which it's proud. Uh, at the same time, there is not an insignificant number of people on the player side who believe that the baseball financial system is so fundamentally broken that no matter what deal players go out and sign, it's going to wind up being a bad one. Because when you look at the spending restrictions, Tony, that are in place in a number of areas, um, it, it really shows a system that is almost automatically rigged in the owner's favor. They used to be able to go out and spend as much money on draft uh, picks as they want to. Right now, 
uh, in the draft. If you spend, I think it's more than 5% over, you lose a first-round pick, and you could potentially lose two future first-round picks. So nobody's going over in the draft. Nobody's going over internationally because it's just a straight-up hard-cap number that uh, has uh, serious penalties uh, attached to that as well. Um, and then you look at free agency, and what's happened really in the last decade is that teams have gotten smarter. They've recognized that while there are outliers, while Max Scherzer is a wonderful example of a free agent contract for a player in his 30s when he signed for 7 and 210 with the Nationals, that went right. Um, the, the majority of players in their 30s are on the downswings of their career, and thus some of the free agent contracts that we saw in the past teams just are not giving out anymore. And so uh, you have this system in which the owners can say, well, we can't spend on amateur talent can't spend in other places. We're, we're not going to exceed the, the luxury tax threshold, which, by the way, the, the league has proposed so far, at least, goes up a minimum amount and on top of that has harsher both financial and at the top end draft pick penalties than it does right now. Uh, the people who are on the side of a cap system look at themselves and say, the game is rigged. We can't beat that. So if we can't beat that, then why don't we look at all of these things that Major League Baseball has? Let's look not just at the game day revenue and at the television revenue, but let's look at gambling. Let's look at crypto. Let's look at these ancillary properties that they've got. Uh, you know, Ballpark Village in St. Louis and the Battery in Atlanta that are busy every day, 80-plus days a year, plus the playoffs, and say, hey, we want a chunk of all of that. And listen, it's a compelling argument in a lot of ways, Tony, if you're trying to maximize money made. But you look back at the fundamentals of Marvin Miller's free agency, and it's less about money and more about freedom and ability to choose. And that, at least up to this point, is the path that the players have taken. I'll get you out of here on this because it's, yeah, you do sound discouraging. Um, but that it, yeah. in the middle of negotiations, <laughs> like, everybody does. Everybody sounds discouraging because, I, I mean, you, because you, people you take know, hard and fast positions. Go ahead. You, you, know, you know what the feeling is like because I'm sure when people run into you publicly, they want to talk about sports. And every time I see yeah. somebody for the first time in a couple of months, they say, like, What's uh, going hey, on uh, they, they're going to get this thing fixed. And the only, the only positive I have at this point is that Major League Baseball at the last negotiating session set a February 28th, uh, essentially drop dead date for opening day. They said to the union, if we don't have a deal in place by February 28th, there are not going to be games on opening day, so we better get moving. And still to this point, you know, it's it's been, you know, we're approaching uh, the, the week mark since the league last proposed something, and uh, those days are ticking away very quickly. Well, I love baseball, but, you know, if baseball doesn't happen, I've watched this in so many sports, mm-hmm. and then I've watched the pandemic change the schedule of so mm-hmm. many sports. You know what? And if you have to live with it, you live with it. That, I mean, that's the way I look at it. If you have to live with it, you live with it. Ultimately, the people that get hurt the most in all strikes are the players because, you know, their, their bodies are not going to hold it. Not everybody's Tom Brady. You're not yep. going to play that long. You lose, a, a, you lose a year. It's a big deal. You lose a year. So we'll talk yeah, down the road. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's the, the, you know, if I could say there's a calculus on the club side, it would be that we're willing to play this out for two reasons. Number one, because we're the rich guys. And even though they are more leveraged than in typical years because of loans they have not had to, because of loans they took during the pandemic, um, they're still 30 billionaires. And it's hard to break a billionaire. Um, The second part, though, I think is they look at players and say uh, the majority of players in the big leagues 
still haven't made a million dollars a season uh, or are trying to claw for that big league roster spot. Think the same way you do that, you know, taking a year off my career that may last two, three years, uh, you know, on average, uh, what, what am I doing? I'm giving away my prime earning potential players at the ends of their careers, saying this might be my last payday. Giving away that, they're hoping at some point the union uh, will bifurcate or or will split even into more pieces. And the entire thing, if you see in their public statements, Tony, that the players have been preaching is we are unified. And And from all I can tell, that much is true, but to me, the, the interesting part isn't as much their unification as it is their radicalization. I've never seen players like this in the near 20 years I've been covering baseball. They're pissed, they're together, and they believe their fight is as much a moral crusade as anything. So if that's the case, then then we're not they're not going to see baseball for a while. We'll see. But we'll talk much more about it. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. Tony. Jeff Passon, boys and girls. He knows this stuff. Yes, he does. If he's discouraged, we're discouraged. We'll take a break. When we come back, email and jingle. I'm Tony Kornheiser. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. Here comes Tony's mailbag, going to read some faxes and your notes. Here comes Tony's mailbag, going to read some for all your folks. Going to read some for all your folks. Tom Mosser. <laughs> yes. Makes me laugh. <laughs> always from it's Pittsburgh. Always yes. You, you want to do the Bethesda Bagel read? Yes, thank you. Bethesda Bagels. We love them. You would as well. Just go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you. Then pop on in and you'll be thrilled. That'll do it for us today. Before we get to the mailbag, let me just say, what's the matter with the clothes I'm wearing? Can't you tell that your tie's too wide? Maybe I should buy some old tab collars. Welcome back to the Age of Jive. Where have you been at, hiding out lately, honey? You can't dress trashy till you spend a lot of money. Everybody's talking about the news sound funny, but it's still rock and roll to me. Long Island's own William Joel. Yes. Thanks to our guests today, Washington Post's columnist Barry's Verluga, ESPN's Jeff Passan. Thanks as well to today's sponsors, X-Share and the new one, Trade Coffee. And remember, you can listen to us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Odyssey. If you get the show through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. We're going to stay with the hometown stuff because I like it. <laughs> um, been a listener since the WTEM days and a reader since you actually wrote sports for the Post. This is from Gary Sims. I know by now you must be getting very tired of people telling you famous people from their hometowns, but since I went to Camp Echo Lark across the lake, like Independence, I put in parenthetically, from your <laughs> Camp Kiyuma, and regularly beat you and Coach Larry in basketball, which never happened. Which never happened. I thought I might have the right to add to the list. I'm from White Plains. A certain wide receiver we like to call Art Monk. You probably remember him. I went to school with two-time Olympic gold medalist Larry James, who you covered in the 68 games. And oh, by the way, we have a minor celebrity from White Plains who goes by the name of Mark Zuckerberg. Yes, that Mark Zuckerberg. Talk about connective tissue. From Andrew Lacey in Broken Bow, Nebraska. Ooh, love that name. How cool is that? That's a great town name. My hometown of Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, doesn't have a lot of famous people we can claim, but it is the birthplace of Randy Meissner. The original basis oh, for, for the Eagles. Eagles. Yeah. More importantly, a young Steve Sands briefly spent time at the local TV station here and early in his career. So we got that going for us, which is nice. <laughs> from Nick Crow in Rockford, Illinois. The Rockford Peaches are from Rockford, Illinois, as well as Cheap Trick. Oh, that's right. From that's, League of Their Own. Oh, yeah. That's, you know, that's the, the women's team. It's wonderful. Yeah, great movie. Fred Van Vliet is also from here. All-Star, baby. We even have a Subaru dealership and an Applebee's. <laughs> well, isn't that lovely? Steve Gilmore. Number of outlets, no idea, but... More than one in less than 20. Famous people from Salado, Texas, zero. But Billy Idol shot me the finger once, so maybe that's something. <laughs> Personal info, I'm on a 22-game 20 game win streak on Wordle. I thought you should know Edith Saliza. <laughs> um, from, who's this from? Oh, from Steve in Forest Hills in Queens. Carbone sounds nice and all. But I'm wondering if you can help me. You see, I'm looking for a place called Lee Ho Fuchs. I want to get a big dish of beef chow mein. Werewolves of London, baby. Warren Zevon. Brian in Connecticut. Can someone please tell Nigel that on this side of the pond, effort is a noun? And can I get a T-shirt? What? We don't. What T-shirt? I'm going to give that T-shirt. We don't have T-shirts. We're, we're efforting that as we speak. We don't okay? have T-shirts. <laughs> Brian, who went to a school, he says, for the non-rich. From Chris Ungvarsky. 
As a fellow New Yorker, I grew up in Horseheads. That's in upstate New York, a town much closer to Binghamton that's its, than Stony that's Brook. That's its name? Horseheads. Horse yeah. It's near Corning. <laughs> okay. Uh, then Stony Brook. Eat at Stony Brook. And a current Estonian, I've especially enjoyed the recent Bills fan and Eastern PA activity in the mailbag, so much so that it inspired me to write and provide insight to your weather-related quandary from a few pods ago. Why does 50 degrees feel cold in the fall and warm in the spring? The short answer is humans cannot feel temperature. They can only feel change in temperature. Test it before you get on that bike tonight, dressed in white. Touch the metal frame, then feel the rubber wheel, then touch a piece of wood nearby, assuming you're in a garage and not in an illegally parked trailer on a residential street. <laughs> they don't feel the same, but they're all the same temperature. The coldest material feels coldest because it takes your heat faster. The higher the thermal conductivity, the faster the change in temperature and the colder it feels. This is why when the weather turns from 70 to 50 and then from 30 to 50, that 50 feels totally different. We've adapted and are simply sensing the change. If you enjoyed this little thermodynamics lesson, <laughs> could I be the official chemical engineer of the show? Sure. Sure. <laughs> sure. It'll be one more notch in my belt, which I need because like Michael, my dad tells me I'm talented all the time, but he's still working, so maybe I'm not that talented after all. <laughs> P.S. The show stinks, but God help me. I love it so. <laughs> From John Stadola, the Gonzaga class of 1965 and Notre Dame 1969. What do your football prognosticators predict the over-under on the completion of the purple line will be? <laughs> Montgomery County now says 2026. I'd wager on 2028. Anyone over. want the under? No. <laughs> Love to hear what Carville has to say on the subject. From Dana Ost in Columbia, Maryland. Recently, my favorite part of the, chair, uh, the show is not your amusing opening anecdote, the musings of your exciting guests, or hearing the monkey be contrarian to Chuck Todd. Instead, I love hearing your reads for the X chair. The ad takes on a new meaning every day when you announce. From the moment you sit in an X chair, your body will immediately say, ah. And sometimes you read it like, ah, this is so lovely and relaxing. I've heard you read it like, ah, this is something new. And once it definitely sounded like, ah, this is excruciating. Which I don't think is what X chair had in mind. I look forward to your next interpretation of shh. And one more from Skylar O'Brien. As an economics major who now sells chocolate, let me be the first to inform you that the economist you were thinking of is John Maynard Keynes. There we go. Milton Keynes is the result of the smushing of Milton the poet and Keynes the economist. It was chosen because it was a new city designed to help relieve some of the housing constraints in the 60s. On another note, I live in Waco. Do I need to say what famous person or group is from this paradise? Best, Skylar O'Brien. P.S. I'd sign like D.G., but that would leave us at SOB. It's funny. If you're out on your bike tonight, everyone, as always, do wear white. Now, if there's anything I can do for you, but I certainly hope you'll die soon. Broadcast news, baby. I certainly hope you'll die soon. A song as blue as summer skies Like this lonesome heart of mine A dove, a whippoorwill A sparrow's lonesome melody Won't you sing your song to my love Send her running home to me Sweet little bird Go and find the one I love Sing her back home to me Got it to me from above a dove, a whippoorwill, a sparrow's lonesome melody. Won't you sing your song to my love? Send it running home to me. Sing your song to my love, send her running home to me. Sweet little bird, go 
and you're running home to me. Won't you sing your song to my love? Send her running home, home to me. I'm right, mine in blood. 